This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, today we are discussing Mishpatim. And we're discussing how to build a civil society. That is what Mishpatim is all about. Mishpatim means literally law, civil laws. How do you build a civil society? And it's a civil society which is being built in the desert, which is amazing. There's no other... Uh, historical evidence, any other society that was built outside a certain country. There's always societies that are linked to the country and societies develop over time. This is the first time and only time in history where a society was given laws outside their own country. So the Jewish people left Egypt and they're given laws in the desert. They're given laws to build a civil society in a place of no man's land, which is very strange and very unusual. And we know this week's parasha, Mishpatim, has, is the third heavyweight in terms of mitzvot. So Kitetze gets the title. Uh, the most mitzvot in the Torah, parasha Kitetze, 74 mitzvot, and more, 63 mitzvot. Mishpatim is number three, 53 mitzvot, 24 positives, and 29 negative mitzvot. 24 positive, 29 negative mitzvot. That's a lot of mitzvot. So straight after... The uh, 10 sayings, last week had 14 mitzvot, the 10 commandments, we have three more. After that, you had 17 mitzvot. And uh, this week's parasha really takes the cake, the icing on the cake. Hashem does not let the Jewish people off. It doesn't get them a break. They get straight away 53 mitzvot. Boom. So the God of revelation, which we saw last week, is also the God of commandments. It's not enough to be a God of revelation Hashem did not just create the world or did the miracles and walked away. He, he demands obedience. Hashem demands obedience. This is a hard part of being a Jew. Is we have to realize being a Jew carries a weight. And the weight is Hashem is our God and Hashem is the commander. He's not just the God who walked away. He's the commander in chief. So just like the, uh, the general of the army, Hashem is the general of the army. He's the commander in chief. You cannot have commands without a commander. Someone asked me when I was in, Van- in Vancouver, someone said, you know, they know someone who does a lot of mitzvot, but they just don't believe in God. Is that, it's not a mitzvah, Rabbi. Well, it may be a good deed, but it's not a mitzvah. Why? Because a mitzvah means a command. You cannot do a mitzvah without believing in a commander. You've got to believe in a commander to do a mitzvah. So the first step for anything is, as Rambam puts it in Sefer Mitzvot, the first mitzvah is to know there is a God, to know there's a God that was last week's parasha. But now that we know there's a God, it's not just a God who's invisible and out of here and extraterrestrial, which he is, and he has no shape and no form and he's infinite, but he's also a God who gave us commandments. What do you mean commandments? He gave us a way of life. He gave us a civilization. He gave us a civil society. He told us how to govern ourselves, which is amazing. It's all about governing ourselves, building a system of government which today is, you know, in the news in Israel, what is the system of government? They're trying to change the system of the government. But I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to go into the politics. But here we have a system of government Hashem gives us, mainly in this week's parasha, gives us a lot of the details of the government. We know there's a king. Uh, when there is a king, we know there's a priest, the Kohanim, the priest, they're in charge of the temple, the Mishkan. And we know there's, uh, there's a judge, law courts, the Sanhedrin, and then there's number four, which is the loose cannon. Number four is the loose cannon, and number four is the prophets. And one of these areas of society is not working properly. Hashem sends his prophet, the divine messenger, 
go and rebuke them. And this divine messenger has to be totally fearless because he's up against the most powerful people in the society. And he has to tell them what God says. And sometimes they get mad with the messenger. They don't like the message and they take it out on the messenger. And we know there are certain prophets that the kings killed. Zachariah was killed in the temple. Um, and Yermiyahu, Jeremiah was put in a dungeon and they tried to kill him. Um, and other prophets were killed. Uh, Edo were killed uh, for other reasons. Anyway, so the God of Revelation, we have to realize this week, tells us also the God of commandments. He didn't just reveal himself and do miracles and walk away. He gave us rules to govern society and make our lives better. Uh, human beings cannot live without rules. That's the problem. Probably problem people don't realize we all need structure. If you ever tried to run a class without rules, the school is just a chaos. It's chaos. Children don't know how to work without rules. There's no structure. It's all chaos. Everything needs structure. But we also, in our lives, societies need structure. We need policemen. We need uh, law courts. We need structure. Otherwise, as uh, the Mishnah says in Perkei Avot, if there's no fear of government, a person will eat up their neighbors alive. <laughs> so we do need structure. We need civil society. We need civil discourse. And that's what this week's parasha is all about. The God of Revelation is also the God of Commandments, which seems most remarkable is the interweaving of property rights, religious duties, including the sanctity of Shabbat and the details of Kashrut among these civil laws. It's interesting. What a hodgepodge of laws there are in this week's parasha. I try and put everything together between man and God, between man and man. So Judaism is more than just a legal system. That's the point. The point of the Torah is it's a beautiful it's it's a it's weaving different ideas into the same system it's a weaving of different ideas <laughs> the true literal meaning of torah is to show a path torah means to show a path to show a path in life the torah starts with cosmology it starts with theology and it's replete with stories anecdotes and poems songs we just had the song of the sea and the same thing with the Talmud. The Talmud is a brilliant interweaving of questions and answers, theological discourses, biographical material, and moral parables. If Judaism was simply a religion of law, but its major text should have been presented in the fashion of legal law books. Shulchan Aruch is a code of law. The Torah is not written like a code of law. It's amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful tapestry. The Torah is a tapestry of stories, anecdotes, moral stories, uh, songs, as we said, and legality. Amazing. It's not a cut and dry legal book, which makes it so interesting. Otherwise, you know, unless you're a lawyer with a, a legal brain, you'll be able to learn Torah. It's, it's very, it'll be very technical. It's like learning Shulchan Aruch. It's very, very technical. Uh, you got to know the rules, this rule, this rule, this rule, but the Torah is not like that. The Torah gives you the rules and the commands, but it's interspersed with stories. It makes it polite palatable to, to the youngest children and the oldest people. Anyone can read the Torah on their own level to understand it. So it's a total worldly system. Philosophy, theology, education, ethics, morals, laws, everything. So what is the direction of the biblical and Talmudic laws which shape Jewish society? That's the question we have to ask. That's what we have to talk about today. So number one, we said we mentioned there is a law book, the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, written by Rabbi Yosef Karo um, in uh, Tzfat in the 1600s. 
and with the glosses of the Ramar of Moshe Isilis, who was a rabbi in Krakow in Poland, and somehow, thank God, they got together, uh, not together physically, but they got together through writing. They would write letters to each other. Amazing. The humility of these two giants, because Rabbi Yosef Kara must have been around 70 years old, and the Ramar was a very young man. He died very young. He achieved so much. Rabbi Moshe Isilis from Krakow was writing back to him, and they're both writing the Shulchan Aruchs, and Rabbi Yosef Kara won. He beat the Ramah, he wrote his Shulchan Aruch first, and then the Ramah saw the Shulchan Aruch and says, you know what, I'm not going to write my own Shulchan Aruch. So the Ramah is from Kaka in Poland, writing a Shulchan Aruch for Ashkenazim. He said, you know what, he had the humility. He said, I'm just going to put glasses on the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo. I'm going to add my notes and comments on it to give the divergent minhagim. That's all. I don't argue with basic law. All I do is I give different minhagim. So Shukran says one thing, and the Ramaz says, the Minhag in our countries are like this. Amazing humility this way, both Spiritim and Ashkenazi, we both have one Shukran Aruch. There's only one Shukran Aruch. There's only one code of law, the code of Jewish law, and that's it. Okay, that's the Shukran Aruch. But the Shukran Aruch starts off, let's just try and examine just very quickly, how does that shape the Jewish society? Shukran Aruch starts off with rising in the morning. It tells us the first halakha in the Shukran Aruch is to get up like a lion in the morning. This is one of the hardest halachot, which I, I'm still struggling with, is to wake up like a lion in the morning. Now, this, this mainly applies to men more than women, because men are going to go to shul and pray shacharit. And, you know, I'm looking at my neighbor in Highland Park. <laughs> he wakes up at 9 o'clock, rolls out of bed, has his breakfast, and goes off to work at 9.30. And here I am. My day starts, you know, 6.30 in the morning at shacharit. And then uh, by the time you get home, and then you, uh, you take a bite and run back. It's, it's, it's a rat race. Uh, for Jews, it's even more of a rat race than anyone else because we have added, added burdens. So that's how the Shulchan starts off with. Wake up like a lion in the morning to serve God. Wake up in the, like a lion, serve God. The Ramah, Ramosh Islam, we said, mentioned, he says, and always have God in front of your eyes. Shaviti Hashem, put the vision of God's name. We cannot imagine God, but the closest we can get to God is through his name. The, the name of God is the gateway to God. It's interesting. And we say this every day, you know, every, many times a day, 100 blessings a day, you say God's name, that is the gateway to God. How, what do you mean the gateway to God? The only thing you can think about when it comes to God is the name. The only thing we have physical that represents Hashem, which we're allowed to think about. We're not allowed to think about any images, any uh, shapes, any forms. The only thing we're allowed to think about is the name. And that's uh, the Kabbalists, you know, they meditate on God's name. Different names of God, and they meditate. And that's the gateway to Hashem. The gateway to Hashem is through His name. And that's the first Halakha Shulchan Aruch. Get up like a lion and put God's name in front of your face. You have some people they have in their homes what's called a Shiviti, which has Yudke Vavke, and it's uh, painted and it's beautiful, uh, or it's a Mizrach. They have a Mizrach wall. You know, when a person is praying at home, they should face the east in Hutzlars in, in America, you face the east. In uh, the east, you're facing the west. In Israel, you're facing Yushalayim, whichever way it is. So it depends where you are in, uh, relative to Yushalayim. That's where you put this, this painting, this Mizrach painting, the Shibiti painting, when you're facing there. So you just remember Hashem all the time. And this, this by the way, is in the mezuzah. On the outside, the mezuzah has written the name of one of the names of God, Shim Dalad Yud, uh, which is the name of God, one of, the, one of the seven names that cannot be erased. Those are the seven holy names of God that cannot be erased. Those are the gateways to God. Those are the gateways. Anyway, so Shulchan Aruch starts off with this statement, wake up like a lion, and the end of the Shulchan Aruch, 
In the end of your day, he deals with laws of mourning. So the sugar is passing a path to us for life. You start off your day, that's with a bang, get up like a lion, think of God, and then when you go, you're going to go at the end, the way you came in. We, we came in asleep, and we, woke, and we woke up like lions, and we're leaving the world asleep again. And just like we started the day with Shema Yisrael, we end our lives with the Shema Yisrael. This is amazing, this concept of Shema Yisrael. Just like we started our day, we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Hashem, God is one. The last word a Jew should have on their lips is Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Hashem, God is one. We start off the day with one, we end off our lives with one. That's the Shukhan Aruch. From the beginning of the day to the end of one's life, we are serving God. That is a Jewish uh, lifestyle. That's what Shukhan was talking about. Now let's go and compare that to the Rambam. Now the Rambam was much earlier than the Shukhan Aruch. The Rambam lived in 1132. He was born in 1132 in Spain. He died in 1185, something like that in Egypt, and he wrote his magnum opus. He wrote three major works. One was the commentary of the Mishnah, all the Mishnah, and he wrote it by heart pretty much, which is amazing. He knew the whole Mishnah by heart. Why? Because it was on the run. The Rambam was always on the run. He was running around. So he, he was always on the run. And he says, if I make mistakes, please forgive me. I'm writing this by heart for my memory. Write the Mishnah, you know, the commentary of the Mishnah by heart. And the Rambam then, he wrote, the Morin of which is the guide for the perplexed, which is amazing philosophy. And uh, then he also wrote this Mishnah Torah. This Mishnah Torah, he says, it's a book of law like no other Jewish book of law. Why? Because it's interspersed with philosophy and it's interspersed with a bit of history as well. So it's like no other book of law. Now it's interesting to see how he wrote his book of law. He started off his book of law with Yesodei HaTorah, the foundations of the Torah, what are our theological and philosophical foundations of the Torah? Obviously, number one, we got belief in God, knowledge. He doesn't say belief in God. It's a mitzvah to know there is a God, not just to believe. There's a difference between belief and knowledge. There's a mitzvah to believe. No, wrong mitzvah to know there is a God. It's much higher than belief. We have to actually strive. It's a lifetime's effort to know there is a God. I know. I don't doubt. I have no doubt at all. It's not just a belief. That I believe, yeah, I think so. I believe so. No, I know there's a God out there. God who created me. There's a God who interferes with our life. How do I know? Because when I talk to him, he answers me. How does he answer me? Not verbally, but in things that happen. Things that happen in the world. Things that happen around me. Things that happen in my family. Things that happen to me. That's how I know there's a God. I can relate to God. I can talk to God. That's a mitzvah for every Jew. Every Jew should know there is a God. And there should be no doubt in their minds. And that's something we have to strive for. That's something we have to know in our lives. So halacha means walking. It's our legal system. Walks us through life. Teaching us how to live each moment morally and meaningfully. So Rambam begins with the Surya Torah. Philosophy of God. Philosophy of the world. Philosophy of the Torah. Ethical monotheism. And in the end of the Rambam, he doesn't end off with death of the Jew. What does he end off with? He ends off with messianic times. <laughs> the Rambam thinks big. The Rambam does not think, you know, I start off the morning like this. No, he thinks, number one, he's got to know all the foundations of the Torah. What are the philosophical and theological foundations of the Torah? And he ends off with the messianic era, the, the era of utopia for the world. This is amazing structure for a legal book, right? Uh, what's the structure of a legal book? 
starts off with philosophy, starts off with theology, and ends off with a messianic age. We must observe the law with a proper understanding, Rambam says. And the purpose of the law is to create a nation and a world, not just a nation, a world where there will be no more evil or destruction, which we seems like today we're still very far away from. A world with no evil, no destruction. Obviously, this is part of uh, Isaiah's vision, which is on the United Nations wall of uh, in New York City. You can go to the United Nations wall, you see this. The verse from Isaiah is on the UN wall in New York City, and uh, you know they beat the, their swords into plowshares. No nation will lift up sword on our nation. This is the vision of Isaiah. That's how the Rambam ends off his his code of Jewish law with messianic times. Our mission is that Taken Olam to fix the whole world, not just to fix the Jewish world. Fix the whole world. It's so hard just to fix the Jewish world. Can imagine fixing the old world. So that's that's our mission is to be a light to the nations. But it's rather shame. We, we have to succeed. We, we, we're failing. We have to succeed. So our task is not only to serve God by making him the center of our lives, we must also serve him to bring about a utopia. That's who talks about utopias. I mean, we can barely, you know, people are fighting each other, tooth and nail, killing, killing each other. We have to talk about utopia. Yes. This is our vision for the future. At least we have a vision. We have to spread the vision. The vision is no more wars, no more bloodshed. The law provides higher meaning to our daily life, but also demands commitment to ethical monotheism and holds out a vision of ultimate perfection for mankind. So that is a very big goal. The big goal is perfection for all humanity. That's amazing. Okay. Okay, so now we know that the Torah has 613 mitzvot. 613 mitzvot, how do we know? Because the gematria of the word Torah is 611. Torah, 611. And two mitzvot were given to us straight from God. So Torah was given to us by Moses, 611 mitzvot for Moses. Two were heard directly from God at 613. Now the prophets, the late prophets, you know, they, it's interesting because they sort of gave us a synopsis of the Torah. They try to boil everything down into small bites. And this way, the common man could remember, what is the Torah all about? Can I get the whole Torah on one foot? Like the uh, a Gentile came to, to Shammai and said, can you teach me the whole Torah on one foot? I'm interested in becoming a Jew. And Shammai pushes him away. So he goes to Hillel and he says, Hillel, can you give me the whole Torah on one foot? I, can't, I don't have time to stick around. And Hillel says, what you don't want others to do to you, don't do to others. Don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. That is the main principle of the Torah. The rest is all commentary. Go and learn the commentary. (laughs) So what is the synopsis of the Torah? So that's interesting because not just Hillel gives synopsis, but way before Hillel, the prophets, the prophets, the great prophets, uh, Micha, the prophet Micha in chapter 6, verse 8 states, Three things. The synopsis of the Torah is do justice, love kindness, and walk with God. Do justice, which is this week's parasha, do justice, love kindness, and walk with God. So three things. If you want to boil down the Torah, it's amazing, amazing how these prophets boil down the Torah for the common man. Three things. Justice, kindness, and walk with God. Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 56, verse 1, states the verse 2. He says, observe 
mishpat, which is justice, and do tzedakah, do righteousness. So it's interesting. It's not just being righteous. How do you be righteous? And the answer is, you have to do righteousness. How do you do righteousness? Well, today, tzedakah, it doesn't mean charity. Tzedakah means righteousness. When you give tzedakah, you do righteousness. There's many ways of doing tzedakah. Tzedakah can be financial. Tzedakah can be helping people who need help. Tzedakah can be volunteering one's time, uh, one's energy. Tzedakah can be smiling at people. Tzedakah can mean cheering people up. That's tzedakah, righteousness, being right, doing what God's will, God's will, uh, visiting the sick, helping the orphans and the widows. It's all righteousness. So Isaiah sums it up. Observe mishpat, be justice. Justice means treat your neighbors equitably. Treat your uh, business has to be run in an equitable way. Treat people equitably, justice. And do tzedakah, be righteous. Habakkuk, he sums it up in one line, which is very hard to understand. The one line is, Sadiq. Three words. Sadiq A righteous person lives by his emuna, by his faith. Now, what does that mean? Let's try and understand a little bit. Number one, he says righteousness. So that's righteousness right there. Even though it's only three words, he, he puts the word Sadiq, you know, aspire to be a Sadiq and live by your emuna. What does that mean? If you want to be straight in life, the only way you've got to be straight in life is you believe there's a higher power. So the only way to be righteous is to believe in a higher power. Otherwise, what is telling me what to do? What is going to, what is, uh, who's going to judge me? Who's watching me right now? You know, the beautiful story. I say this all the time. Rabbi Israel Salanta. Rabbi Israel Salanta was in a wagon. He was going to a certain place with his wagon driver. He hired his wagon driver and the wagon driver now is concerned. You know why? Because his, his horse is getting hungry. Now, where am I going to feed him? So they pass a beautiful field with a beautiful uh, stack of hay over there. And he tells the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, he says, just tell me if anyone's watching. He stops the cart, he gets off, runs into the field and he grabs some hay for his horse. And he suddenly the rabbi starts shouting, someone's watching, someone's watching. He runs back, leaves the hay behind, gets on the, on the, on the wagon and says, giddy up. And he turns around, he looks around, he says, Rabbi, I didn't see anyone watching. Who's watching? The rabbi said, Hashem is watching. God is watching. So we have to remember that. There's no God. Who's watching? Who is watching us? And that's what uh, Habakkuk is telling us in chapter 2, verse 4. A righteous person is righteous because of the emunah. We have to remember that. It's only because the moral God who is watching us. That's why a person can be righteous. Without that, there's no incentive to be righteous. Ethics, justice, and spirituality. Three keys for the Torah is, those are the three keys. Let's try to remember them tonight. Ethics, justice, and spirituality. Those are the three keys in life. As Hillel said, don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. That is the grounds for civil society. Grounds for civil society is, don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. You know, in Israel, we all live in apartment buildings, well, except for the lucky few. We all <laughs> live in apartment buildings, and you have to get along with your neighbors. And anyway, the truth is anyone who lives in a apartment building has to get along with their neighbors. And that's the key. The key is don't do to others what you don't want others do to you. And the higher level is, what the Torah says, is love your friend as yourself. Love your friend as yourself. So interesting. These are the, these are the keys to uh, civil society. Okay, I want to go now into an interesting side 
uh, aside, and that is, you know, the Torah consists of two parts. There's laws between man and man and laws between man and God. We saw this clearly in last week's parasha, two tablets. Why did God give the, the commandments to Moses, the, the 14 commandments, the 10 sayings to Moses on two separate uh, tablets? And the, the classic answer is one tablet is laws between man and God, and the second tablet was laws between man and man. So Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain with these two massive tablets, and uh, they were cubes, and uh, we all know the story. But anyway, so these two tablets symbolize these two aspects of the Torah, man and man, man and God. Now, let's just go through and have an intellectual exercise over here in terms of which are more important. Are laws between man and man more important? Are laws between man and God more important? So I don't want to take a vote, but uh, let's try and go through some of these uh, sources and let's try to examine what's going on. So is it more important, rituals, man and God, or man and man, or chesed? Let's call it rituals versus chesed. Rituals are man and God. Chesed is man and man. What is more important, the Torah commandment that deals with personal relationships and rituals, ben adam, lemakom, between man and God. Man and man versus man and God. A strong argument can be made. The Torah places priority not on rituals, but on laws between human beings. Okay, let's read a few sources over here. Number one, the great Abraham, our forefather Abraham. This is a story in Genesis, in Breshit, in Parshat Vayera. We read Abraham Avinu. He was sitting outside, outside his tent. He was recovering from surgery, and Hashem comes to talk to him. Vayera elav Hashem. Hashem appeared to Abraham outside Abraham's tent, and he's talking to Abraham. Can you imagine Hashem? What a, this is amazing. We have to try and think of this. Abraham Avinu, our forefather, had revelation. He had prophecy. He could see Hashem in a vision. Rambam says it's always a vision. You can't see Hashem without being in a vision, in, without being in a meditative state. Abraham Avinu was meditating, but he was conscious. It was interesting because he was semi-conscious or uh, or not. Well, we're going to see, but um, Abraham Avinu is meditating, seeing God. And then in the distance, he sees three strangers and he's waiting for guests. He, he loves to do hospitality. He sees three strangers and he runs to the strangers and he leaves God. I mean, how can you do that? How can you run to strangers and leave God? He's talking to God. He says, God, excuse me, i got to run. I've got to have some guests. I'm going to have some. You know, it's interesting because this is that if a person wants to pray, and it's time to pray, and guests come, well, he's, the guests take priority. If the guests are there and they don't have food and they don't have lodging and they don't have uh, things to look after themselves, <laughs> the guests take priority over God. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Why would your guests take priority over God? Well, we learned from Abraham. Abraham leaves God and runs to these people who are needy uh, people walking through the desert in the heat of the day, and he runs and offers the water, food, and, and shelter. And so we learn from there, yes, that takes priority. So there's a strong argument, right? That's number one. One number one proof is run to the guests and leave God. Can you imagine? Run to the guests. Now, you can, you can argue that's not really uh, what it is, a man and man. But, you know, God mandates it because God agreed. God says, you know what? I want you to have guests. Okay, but still, Hashem wants us. The man and man comes before rituals. Hashem says, put the human being before me. Put the human being first. Number two. 
So interesting. There's an interesting halakha in rituals. There's an interesting law. We know this, this concept of, you know, a, a bit of milk fell into the meat pot. Rabbi, rabbi gets a call, you know, call the rabbi. What should I do? My, uh, my dairy fork fell into the, the, the meaty soup. What should I do, rabbi? So there's a, there's a thing in the Jewish law called one in 60. The taste is annulled at one in 60. And therefore, it is 60 times as much soup as the volume of the spoon or whatever that fell in or the, the book that fell in, obviously accidentally, then it's kosher. It's kosher. It's annulled. It's annulled one in 60. So by rituals, you can annul things. That's interesting. But by man and man, you cannot annul things. For example, a person stole money. He stole a dollar from someone. And he mixes this dollar that he stole with a hundred or thousand other dollars. Doesn't get annulled. Stealing robbery does not get annulled at anything. <laughs> Milk and meat can be annulled. Rituals can be annulled. One in 60, one in 100 for truma, one in 200 for other things. But money or robbery cannot be annulled. Rituals can be annulled. But man and man cannot be annulled. A person has a sukkah, a schach, the covering of the sukkah, and uh, a little bit of schach uh, was not kosher. There was, uh, say, uh, a metal rod in the mixture of the schach. So again, the, if it's a mixture, and the majority of the schach is kosher, the schach is kosher, the schach is kosher. Again, you only find that in rituals. You don't find this law between man and man. When it comes to man and man, there's no annulment. When it comes to ritual, we have a general concept. A positive commandment pushes aside a negative commandment. The positive commandment of Brit Milah on the eighth day pushes aside Shabbat. It's interesting. Why would the, okay, so rituals, positive, push side, a negative. So let's say a person, it's Sukkot, a person says, I need my palm, I need a, a, a lulav. I see my friend in his backyard, he has a lulav. Ah, it's a positive mitzvah to shake the lulav. I can go and take it. Stealing is only a negative mitzvah, so a positive should push aside negative. Uh-uh. It only works in rituals, doesn't work in man and man. I cannot steal a lulav to serve God at the expense of stealing it from my friend, my neighbor, my, someone else. Why? Because it's, the, the, the Mishnah says in, in, in uh, Sukkah, amazing line. It says, Ein When a person makes a bracha on a mitzvah, which is through robbery, he's not making a bracha, he's cursing God. Amazing line to say. In other words, a person cannot do a mitzvah, a ritual, through something which is hurting other people. You cannot do a ritual based on hurting other people. So, you know, that, that was a problem in the, in the time of the latter, latter prophets. And they were complaining about the people. They're doing mitzvot. They're offering all these korbanot, these sacrifices, but they're oppressing the widows and the orphans. That's not what God wants. That's not what God wants. God wants rituals which are clean, not rituals which are, you know, it's like a person says, you know, I'm going to work on Shabbat. But don't worry, I'm going to give the money to charity. Someone asked me that when I was a rabbi in somewhere I want to mention. So someone asked me, Rabbi, you know, if I work on Shabbat, I'll give money to Staka. What's the problem? You know, that's not what God wants. God wants clean money. God wants money which is not through oppression. God wants money which is not through robbery. So do a ritual, not the expense of other people. Sorry. So, you know, there's an interesting halakha which says um, not to steal someone's sleep. Have you ever heard of this concept of stealing sleep? <laughs> Only Jewish law would talk about such a thing as stealing someone's sleep. So, yeah, a person's got to be very careful. They want to wake up, you know, they're living in a dorm. 
in the yeshiva dorm and they want to wake up and pray extra early, they're going to be careful not to wake other people up. Stealing sleep. So a person is doing a mitzvah, but the, the mitzvah has vibrations. So if a person wants to learn Torah at night, but he's screaming at the top of his head, and the neighbors are being woken up, that is rituals at the expense of human condition, and that is not allowed. A person is not allowed to hurt other people through rituals. So uh, it seems intent. Let's go to another inter- interesting thing. When a person does a ritual, there's a brach. Every time you do a ritual, there's a blessing to be said. Even a person counts the omer, there's a bracha to be said. You like the Shabbat candles, a bracha to be said. You make kiddush on Shabbat, a bracha to be said. When you do acts of kindness, there's no bracha. When a person does an act of kindness, it's interesting, there's no blessing to be said. There's a big discussion why. Why is there no blessing to be said in acts of kindness? So very simply, um, the Rashba says, in things where there's no maximum, you cannot quantify the mitzvah, and therefore there's no blessing. I can, I can only say a, a blessing on something which is quantifiable. There's a mitzvah to light candles. It's quantifiable. Minimum one candle, two candles, three candles, six candles. That's it. Seven candles. You know, how many, how many candles? There's no mitzvah to be go over that. Okay, some people light as many kids in the house, whatever it is. There are different customs, but the minimum mitzvah is quantifiable. It's one candle. You light one candle, you've done the mitzvah of lighting candles for Shabbat. But the mitzvah of chesed, of kindness, there's no, it's not quantifiable, and therefore you can't say a bracha of chesed. It's a beautiful idea, but also, say a person going to visit the sick. A person goes to visit the sick, and he says a bracha on the sick person, thank you, Hashem, for giving me this mitzvah of visiting the sick. How, how do you think the sick person is going to feel? Ah, oh, he came here, he's not coming here to look after me, he came here just because he wants to do a mitzvah. Or say there's a bracha on kibud aveim. Your father says, can you get me something? Your mother says, do this for me, darling. And uh, you say a bracha before you do it. Okay, how would your parents feel? Oh, you're not doing it for me, you're doing it for God. That's not what God wants. God wants people to feel pleasure that you're doing, you're going out of your way to do things for them. Even though in the back of your mind you're doing it for God, really, it's chasin, it's kindness. You're doing it for the act of kindness. There's no bracha. It's interesting. There's no bracha on acts between man and man. The bracha is only between God and man. Rituals. Only a rituals there's a bracha of a mitzvah. In terms of doing the mitzvah, it's only a bracha on rituals. There's no bracha on the mitzvah between man and man. When you give tzedakah, there's no bracha. When you do uh, kindness to someone, there's no bracha. When you visit the sick, there's no bracha. When you go and uh, comfort the mourners, there's no bracha to be said. Why is that? And the answer is because it's so powerful that it stands the mitzvah without a bracha. The bracha is there to remind us we're doing the mitzvah. When you do acts of kindness, it's so powerful that it's an act of goodness. It's so powerful, you don't even need a bracha for it. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. Let's move on. How many rabbis do you need to ask if something is kosher? Yes. And the answer is only one. Only one rabbi to ask. Obviously a good one. Uh, a reliable one. Your LOR, your local Orthodox rabbi, LOR. Um, but when it comes to judgment between man and man, how many rabbis do you need? And the answer is a minimum of three. To be a dayan on a beitin, you need three judges. So, so rituals, only one judge. Laws between man and man, you need three judges minimum. And then the next level up, Sanhedrin, is 23 judges. 23 judges to judge uh, capital cases. 23 judges. And then you had the high court in Jerusalem of 71 judges. That's amazing. Supreme Court in Jerusalem was 71 judges. Imagine the uh, 
the lower court was 23 judges. You can't have any capital punishment without 23 judges. And laws between man and man, monetary cases, three judges. Whereas it comes to rituals, you only need to walk, call up your local rabbi, get an answer. That's the answer. That's it, ritual. So laws between man and man, three judges, laws between man and God, only one. So interesting, we have a lot of different proofs going right through the, the uh, Torah that man and man is more important than man and God. However, in this week's parasha, the answer is over here. Very clearly, the Torah intersperses Laws between man and man with laws between man and God. Why is it interspersing? It's talking about man and man, and it goes with laws of man and God. And the answer is because it's telling us they're both equal. You can't have one without the other. We need both. We need to work on our spiritual side, and we need to work on our physical side. We need to work on our spirituality between us and God, and we need to work on the spirituality that we get between us and man, a social spirituality. That's amazing. Helping other people, that's what God wants. So that's what this Torah, the Torah portion tells us. After laws of loans and pledges, we're going to talk about the text switches gears. The text comes along and says, you shall not curse God. You shall not delay the fullness of your harvest and the outflow of your press. In other words, you have to give your tithes and your priestly offerings. Then after more rituals, there are more legal laws. The Torah concludes with festivals and the laws of Shabbat. Why this to and fro movement between rituals and man and man? And the answer is to tell us we need them both. You can't say one is more important than the other. Although there are priorities at certain times, you cannot say that one is more important than the other. In fact, we live, it's interesting. There's another proof from the laws of Teshuvah. If I wrong God, if I don't do a mitzvah or I do an avira, I do a sin, I have to ask God for forgiveness. I go straight to God. There's no, there's no intermediaries in Judaism. You go straight to God. There's a vidui, you say vidui, uh, which is the atonement uh, prayer, uh, which you beat your chest and you say the vidui and you honestly mean it. Okay, there's different processes, but it's between man and God. So it's just you and God. You just go to God straight and say, you don't have to even go anywhere. Just turn to God. You don't even have to turn anywhere. You just say to God, Hashem, I'm sorry. I did this, I regret it, I'll never do it again. And you really have to mean it, and that's pretty much teshuva in one, on one leg. However, if you person the wrong to someone else, to a human being, it's more complicated. Then you have to go to, first you have to go to the human being, and then you have to go to God. So it's a two-stage process, much harder. Uh, and that's okay. So man and God, man and man is much more complicated than man and God in certain respects. And it's probably much harder as well in many different aspects. Anyway, so there's an interesting mitzvah in this I'm going to focus on If there's money, lend it to you, my people. If there's money, lend it to my people. If there's money, lend it to my people. What does that mean if there's money lending to my people? So there's, uh, there's a lot of different uh, opinions over here. Let's get started with the Ramban Nachmanides. Ramban says, you have to lend enough money for the person not to beg. If you have money, lend it to people that, so that they shouldn't beg. That's why it's if. If you will lend money to my people, lend money to the poor. Okay? If you will lend, 
it seems to be a matter of choice. That's the question. It seems to be a matter of choice. What's going on? Ibn Ezra says, if you are in the possession, why does it start? Why does the mitzvah start with if? You know, a mitzvah does not start with normally with if. Very few mitzvahs start with if. Usually it is, do this and do that. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't say if you have a father and honor them. So why does the mitzvah of charity, of, of lending the poor, start with if? That's the question. Ibn Ezra says, if you are in a position financially to do it, that's the if. If you're in a position of financially to do this, then lend. Sforno says, number two, this is a beautiful idea. Number two, Sforno. Ravadio Sforno, a Spanish rabbi, Middle Ages, says, if poverty is not erased, then there's a mitzvah to lend. The if is going on, the erasure of poverty. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We can't even imagine a, a time, uh, a space where poverty will be erased. Bezrat Hashem, we will see this. This is the Rambam, Messianic era, utopia. Poverty will be erased. If poverty is not erased, there's a mitzvah to lend. Number three, the Shach. The Shach is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. He says, the truth is that the world would be better off without any money at all. Imagine a system where there's no money. I can't even imagine a system with no money. It's all purely barter. I don't know what that means. Money is the root of all evil. So can you find a system where there's no money? I mean, not in our present situation. Obviously, we need money. So the shach says, if the world, it's, if there still is money in the world, there's mitzvah to lend it. <laughs> okay. And use it constructively, lend it to the poor. The Orachim HaKadosh and the Ramban go beyond. If you have funds beyond your needs, then to the poor among you, you are holding on to what belongs to them. The extra money you have is not yours. It's yours to be a manager, to give it away. Wow, that's, that's a very high level. That's an amazingly high level. Rashi says, if you will lend the money to the poor man within you, what does that mean? Envisage yourself as poor, then you will lend to others. If you think that you are in need, wouldn't you give it to yourself? And if you give it to yourself, give it to others. That's amazing. Amazing idea. You know, there's a, there's a brilliant idea. Is, uh, you know, you see someone drowning in a river. In a river. Do you have to jump in and, and uh, save him? Obviously, if it's a risk to your life, you don't have to save him. But so the criteria, I heard an interesting criteria, similar criteria is Rashi. Uh, if you would lend it to yourself, you would lend it to others. Lend it to others. What does that mean? It says, if, you're, if you see a million, your, your money fell into the sea. Would you jump in and get that money? It's a lot of money. Say a jewel fell in. It's millions of dollars fell in there. Would you jump in, risk your life to get it? If you would risk your life to get it, you have to risk your life to pick up your friend from the mind of the water. So that's the criteria. The criteria is, what's the if? The if is, if you would lend it to yourself, lend it to him. Right? If you were poor, would you lend it to yourself? If you would, then you have to lend it to him. That's a beautiful idea. You know, it's a beautiful legend in Midrash. It talks about Shlomo Melech. King Solomon, one of our greatest kings. It says he would, he would disguise, he would dress up in disguise to go around his kingdom to check how people are doing. What is the welfare of people? And he, see the, he saw things which needed to be fixed. He would fix them when he went back to his palace. So it's a great idea for the king to get out there and mix with people and see how real people live. And we need more of our, our leaders today to get out there and see how the regular people live. I want to end off this class today with this beautiful Rambam. The eight levels of tzedakah, the eight levels of charity. What are the eight levels of charity? I'm going to go from the lowest to the highest. The eight levels of charity. There's a Rambam 
in uh, Mishpatim, the eight levels of mitzvah charities in this week's parasha, yeah. so eight levels of charity in the Rambam. Number one, to give grudgingly. The lowest level of charity is to give grudgingly. To give grudgingly, the guy comes to you, can you give me something, can you help me, can you help this foundation, can you help this charity, uh, this food bank, whatever it is, and the guy says, I don't want to, but you know what, I'm going to force myself, I'm going to give grudgingly, I'm going to give, I don't really want to give, the guy doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to force myself to give, that's the lowest level of charity, is to give grudgingly, okay, but still the guy gave, obviously he's going to get tremendous reward, there's no question about it, but the next level is much higher. Number two, to give less, but give with good spirits. So this is a very important trick. You know, how much this guy wants? He wants, uh, I don't know what he wants. I'll give a little bit less, but I'll give it without being grudging. I'll give it willingly. I'll give it all my heart. So Ramo said, that's a second second level of charity. That's a high level of charity, to give willingly, even a little bit less, but give willingly. That's a very high level. Number three is to give willingly after being asked. So, so most people just give after they're asked. They don't give before they're asked. It's very hard, to, you know. Most people don't come around looking for, well, some people do, but not most people. They don't look for causes. People call them and then they'll send letters in the mail or whatever it is, and then they give. But if you don't approach them, they don't give. So number three is give after being asked. Number four is give before being asked, without being asked. Person picks up the phone, they know there's a, there's, it's very important to know it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate charity, not a, not a con artist. It's very important to know people you trust, people you know, you've seen what they're doing, and you, you trust them, and to give before being asked. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? I, I see your need. You have a child that needs to get married. Do you need help? That's the, that's the best way of giving charity. It's so hard to do. Most people don't give without being asked. So give before being asked so high. Number five, the donor doesn't know the recipient and the recipient knows the donor. So the donor doesn't know who he's giving to. That's number five. But the recipient knows who's giving. So uh, the donor doesn't know who's giving to. He gives it to a third party. He gives it to the Sodaka Foundation, the Charity Foundation, and the Charity Foundation gives it to the poor man. He says, by the way, who gave this to you? This guy gave it to you. So the donor doesn't know who's getting it, but the recipient knows who's giving it. So there's a little bit of shame involved. And that's why it's number five on the list. Number six on the list is the recipient doesn't know the donor, but the donor knows the recipient. We have many cases where people just leave food outside someone's door or they put uh, they put cash through someone's mailbox <laughs> the guy's walking around town putting cash in the mailbox and you know the famous story of the miser there's a beautiful story i don't know the town it's a true story it's a true story I heard from many places uh, in europe there was a miser famous miser in town and and people just didn't go to the miser. Why? Well, he had a big reputation. But some people did go because they were so hard up. They're so desperate. Say, so, you know, what do I have to lose? Let me go to the miser. Let me see. Maybe I'll give us something. So they would go to the miser and uh, say, I need help. Please, miser, please. Uh, Mr. So, obviously, they didn't call him miser. They said, Mr. So, can you help me, please? And then Mr. So, would say, how much do you need? Why do you need it? What's the problem? Da, 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 da. He asked 50 questions and said, sorry, I can't help you. And the person would leave, say, curse the miser out, uh, so-and-so. 
But every week after that, they would get cash through their front door. Every week after that, money would appear in their house somehow. And no one knew where it's coming from, and no one even bothered to ask. Until that miser was buried. <laughs> the funeral, the, I'm laughing, but it's really, it's a poignant story. It's a touching story. The miser was dead, and they wouldn't even bury him properly. The Hevra Kadisha refused to give him an honorable burial because he was the miser, never gave charity. But what happened is, <laughs> after they buried him, the rabbi started getting a whole line outside his door. I used to get money through the door and I don't know who was giving it, but now the money stopped. And there's 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people, 200 people lining up at his door on an Arab Shabbat. I don't know. Every Thursday night, we get money through our door and we don't know what happened. And the rabbi put two and two together and he said, it must be that miser. That miser who everyone cursed out, he was... On this level, he was, the recipient didn't know the donor, but the donor knows the recipient. Number six, my, this is number six. Number seven is to give through a foundation or give through a, a, a charitable trust, but it's got to be legitimate. It's got to be honorable. It's got to be, you know, they're helping people, not putting the money in the bank and, or running away with it. It's got to be legitimate. The recipient doesn't know the donor and the donor doesn't know the recipient. That is a very high level. That's number seven on the list. Number eight is not even giving a loan. Giving a loan is number eight. Giving a loan, not giving sadaqah, but giving a loan. Why? Because when a person gets a loan, they don't feel obligated. So getting a loan is much higher. It's the highest level of sadaqah. Or finding someone a job. Oh, that's the highest level. Instead of uh, giving them fish, teach them how to fish. Getting someone a job. You know how many people need jobs? It's, It's amazing. So just to help find someone a job is a tremendous chesed, it's the highest level of tzedakah, because it's tzedakah done with uh, in good taste. No one feels like a debt, I'm in a debt, this guy helped me, this guy helped me, I'm in a debt, or uh, lending money to someone, and uh, you know, you don't have to, it's a free loan society, that's uh, the basis, every Jewish community is a free loan society, it's free of interest, a free interest loan to someone to help them start a business, or help them to get on their own feet. That's the highest level of sakah. But number seven is not bad, not to know the recipient and the donor. The recipient doesn't know the donor. That's that's number eight. That's number seven. The recipient doesn't know the donor. The donor doesn't know the recipient. And uh, on that note, we're going to end off this class. We will serve God both between man and man and between man and God. We'll remember the uh, last part of the Rambam is we're trying to build not just a better uh, community, but a better society, a better world structure. Utopia on earth, many blessings for your safety and security around the world. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.